All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen selling? With regard to Chen's newsletter, now, if you do want to subscribe uh, sometime in the future, uh, you will need to call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, in New York and put your name on a waiting list. Uh, That's Claudio Bossi, and the number is 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. And uh, I believe it will be the start of the new year when Chen will be accepting some new subscribers, depending on the amount of attrition that takes place. we, uh, it is for the sake of the uh, existing subscribers that Chen is trying to keep the number of subscribers down to his newsletter and to keep the quality of his service up as well. Uh, you can, however, subscribe to my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, at this time, you can go to miningstocks.com and do it directly on the Internet, or you can also call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, in New York at 718-457-1426. That's miningstocks.com. Uh, or 718-457-1426, or you can call jtaylormedia.com, or you can go to, I should say, jtaylormedia.com, that's J-A-Y, taylormedia.com, to, uh, to get to all of the things that I do, including the mining stocks, uh, sign up for my newsletter. You can access this radio show very conveniently by going to jtaylormedia.com, and you can also, um, well, you can see everything that I do. I'm occasional television appearance, radio shows that I do in which I'm a guest, um, and other things that uh, are going on, conferences that I attend and so forth. Um, you can also, I should mention, you can also follow me on Twitter under the handle J. Taylor Media. We do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable for today. Our sponsors are Airway Energy, Inc., Aravista Gold, Blue Sky Uranium, Bravada Gold, Brazil Resources, Dynacore Mining, uh, uh, Dynacore Gold, I should say, Gold Mining, Eurasian Minerals, Millrock Resources, Northern Free Gold, and Riverside Resources. I also want to thank each of you for making this show the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel, and I want to thank uh, uh, all the people at uh, Voice America who uh, works with me and helps make this show logistically possible. And today I'm working with a new engineer. His name is Matt, and so I'm looking forward to working with Matt after having worked with Justin for oh, the last couple of years or so. In any event, uh, I do like to talk a little bit about some of our sponsors, well, all of them from time to time, because I believe that they uh, have value to add, especially at this point in time when the junior mining sector has been so downtrodden. Um, 
For example, let me give you an example of a company, one of the sponsors that I think is extremely undervalued, uh, and that is Northern Freegold. Northern Freegold uh, has a gold equivalent resource if you take all the different categories and pull them together, which the regulatory people in Canada don't really like us to do. Uh, you can go on their website and check it out and find out exactly how it's broken down. But if you, the gold equivalent ounces that that company has on its project in the Yukon is just under 6 million ounces. Now they're going to be coming out very soon with a new 43101 resource uh, calculation. And with that, I would expect those numbers will increase. Um, and they also have completed some metallurgical studies, which, as I understand, have been very, very, po- very positive. And the company is going to be uh, doing carrying out a new preliminary or a preliminary economic assessment. I believe they've done one in the past, but they're going to be updating that on the basis of the metallurgy, the new numbers, and so forth. Now. What's amazing is that this company is selling at 11.5 cents. This is a minuscule market cap, and I have to think that somewhere along the line, this is going to be a target for a major mining company, unless there's something that doesn't meet the eye here, unless there's a fatal flaw somewhere that I'm not aware of. But um, we will be uh, certainly talking to uh, this company in the near future on one of our, uh, one of our interviews that we do uh, with the CEO of Northern Freegold, um, Symbol is NFR in Canada. You can also buy it in the United States. Also, I understand that Dynacor, a new sponsor to this show last week, Dynacor Gold, uh, will be announcing its earnings, its quarterly earnings, third quarter earnings sometime uh, before the market opens on Friday, this Friday, November the 9th. And if, uh, if history is any guide uh, to what we can expect, normally what has been the pattern here is Dynacor under-promises and over-delivers. So this is a company that I am extremely bullish. It got hit hard for some reason. Somebody was really knocking the wind out of it earlier today, but I see the stock has bounced back, and it's now selling at about $1.18. And this is a stock that uh, you can also buy over-the-counter, um, and it trades in Canada as well, of course, uh, under the symbol DNG. Actually, I'm looking at the screen now, and it's down eight cents today. Everything else, virtually everything else on the screen is green, with the exception of Pedicelia, and that's another story. I'm not quite, can't quite get my arms around that one, and we don't have Chen Lin with us today to talk about it. But Pedicelia is certainly uh, another interesting story. But uh, Dynacor is a sponsor of the show. We'll be talking to Jean Martinel in the near future about uh, about that company's prospects as it continues to produce profits and grow its gold production in Peru. Uh, we are also going to be talking to a couple of other of our sponsors later today. In fact, I'm going to be talking to Blue Sky Uranium at the uh, at about 4.30 New York time today. Blue Sky Uranium is a company that um, I, I'm extremely bullish on as, as uh, for speculative reasons. I mean, it is certainly not a company that's earning money yet, nor do they expect to earn money anytime right away. In the near future, I suspect that they do have uh, Arriva is a uh, major, the new, major French company, the nuclear uh, power company, uh, has selected them and their project as one of the uh, one of the top projects around the world. They expect they can earn uh, or can develop a major uh, uranium deposit. And this is a company with a mark with an incredibly low market cap, around two million dollars. We'll be talking to Sean Hurd, as I say, around four thirty. And then uh, I'm going to be uh, talking uh, to Christopher Cooper, who's the president and CEO um, of Airway. Uh, Airway Energy, which is a company that is earning money. Nice growth in earnings for that company in Alberta. 
Uh, Christopher Cooper will be with me at about 3.30 New York time here in just about 20 minutes or so. I expect uh, to be talking, actually we're going to be talking to Chris Cooper in about five minutes or so. It's actually a quarter after or so when Chris comes on. Well, I do like to hear from you from time to time. I like to get remarks from you. Uh, of course, I always uh, prefer hearing positive remarks from you. I mean, I would be a liar if I didn't say that. Uh, but it's also good to hear some criticism from time to time. And I did receive an email last week from a listener who thought that I'm just talking way too much uh, and that I should just shut up a little bit and listen to what my guests are saying. Well, I do try to do that. Um, I, I do try to listen, and I, but I do want to be interactive. I'm not going to come here with uh, a bunch of questions uh, on, a, on a sheet and just ask the questions and not listen to what they're saying. I do listen. Uh, I do have my, my own ideas, and I like to interact those ideas with my guests. But in fairness to the, uh, to the, to the uh, listener, I decided to go back and listen to my discussion with Dominic Frisbee, who, by the way, will be here next week on this show as well. And I, re- and I realized as I listened to Dominic, what I like to do sometimes is go listen to my shows, take a nice long walk around the park, uh, and listen to the show. And I was, uh, as I listened to Dominic, I realized the listener was right. I did talk too much because, uh, well, I, I realized that, you know, when I started listening, and I'm saying, I want to hear what Dominic has to say because I already know what I have to say. And the problem uh, that this person had is that, um, is that, you know, I'm constantly talking about what I believe on this show. And, of course, what I believe on this show has everything to do with the kind of guests that I get. I mean, I really truthfully believe that uh, turning hard times into good times requires us all to take a look at what the truth is. And, uh, you know, I think people are driven by different, different desires, different Everybody's different. We all have different motivations. But one of the things that I find very much a part of me is a desire to try to figure out what the truth is with regard to important issues in life. And what uh, I think only if we can understand what the truth is can we really start to, uh, to set ourselves free, so to speak, or to find out or to fix the problems that are, uh, that are being created. So this is one of the dis- issues that I have, one of the big problems I have in this electoral process, and we're going through the, to the voting polls today, of course. Um, I, uh, I am very reluctant to vote this time, and I note that Ms. Shedlack, who will be with us uh, at about 4 uh, o'clock today, Mish is going to come on and talk about inflation and deflation, he uh, also is uh, reticent and about... Um, about voting, and we'll ask him why. Uh, Mish is going to talk to us about a topic that we talk about very often on this show, and that is deflation. Mish is going to be um, with us uh, then, and uh, following a discussion, a pre, uh, pre-recorded discussion, actually, between Robert Prechter and James Turk on inflation, deflation. They will, that will be starting at about 3.30. Uh, I mentioned Dominic Frisbee uh, and my desire to listen to what Dominic had to say. Well, I'm going to have a chance to listen to what Dominic has to say. Uh, and next week, Dominic is going to be with us, and he's scheduled to be with us for a whole hour. And so I think I'll have plenty of time uh, to, to quiet down, throw some questions at Dominic, and listen to what he has to say. He is an extraordinarily entertaining fellow. He is, of course, a a stand-up comedian in Britain, very well known for all the work that he does on television uh, and in the media there. And he has taken on this incredibly uh, serious topic about how to 
uh, really about about the issue of fiat money and how it is really destroying our society. And uh, I think that um, Dominic Frisbee, well, he's just a real talent in many ways, and I'm really delighted to know that he's going to be with us next week again. Uh, we we do have a lot of things to talk about. We've got our next guest, uh, Christopher Cooper, with me already. Uh, let's just see if there's anything else I need to mention about today's show. Uh, I think uh, what we'll do... Um, Oh, just a couple more words. In terms of this whole notion about finding the truth, uh, this show is ostensibly about economics and about the markets, and gold is a probably the word that's mentioned more often than anything else on this show. But getting to the truth of what is really going on has taken me from time to time, even to issues like theology, philosophy, um, and morality and issues like that because I think they're intertwined with economics and the way we run our lives. So I will be talking in the near future to a, uh, a top Israeli scientist, uh, Dr. Schroeder, uh, and I'm going to be talking to another, uh, another person who's written a book called uh, on, the, um, on the Kinsey Studies of the 1960s, the 1950s and 1960s. So there's an awful lot of things that we're going to be, I think, very interesting things we're going to be talking about in the months, uh, weeks and months to come. But right now we do need to pay attention to what's going on in the real world, and the real world, what really drives the real modern world is oil uh, energy, and so we're going to go to a break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking to Chris Cooper of Airway Energy about uh, his company, the growth prospects for that fine little company that's um, throwing off nice profits and growing profits in Alberta. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Chris Cooper. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. Blue Sky Uranium is a leading pioneer in the exploration for uranium in the Patagonia region of Argentina. Their exploration success has attracted one of the world's largest monthly national nuclear power companies to fully fund Blue Sky's exploration programs. Argentina is very focused on nuclear to provide for their energy needs, yet they do not currently produce the required uranium to feed the reactors. Blue Sky has opened up a new frontier for exploration for uranium in Argentina with an objective of supplying both domestic and international markets. 
Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Christopher Cooper, the President and CEO of Arrowway Energy, a company that trades on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol ARW, and you can buy it down here in the United States under the symbol ARWJF. And the stock is actually traded up. It was uh, trading down on a, on a relatively good day earlier in the day, and then when I took a look at it just before we went on the show here, pleasantly surprised to see it's up. Three cents to fifty-two cents with fifty-four million shares outstanding gives it a market cap of about twenty-eight million dollars. Welcome, Christopher. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank, thanks very much, Jay. When you call me Christopher, I think I'm talking to my dad, but uh, you, go, you call me Chris. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, it's Christopher on the website. It's Christopher in the documents, but uh, less okay. formally, Chris is good. Um, so, Chris, you, you just reported profits uh, for your fiscal year ends at the middle of the year, the middle of the calendar year, June 30th. Uh, talk to us about those. I think it was, what, what were your your um, your fiscal profits? You earned how much, sure. and what was your cash flow? Yeah, well, we did uh, we, we did on an adjusted basis, about $0.06 cents per share for Q4, $2.8 million. Um, when I say adjusted, we pull out our non-cash items like depletion, depreciation, stock-based compensation, and and one of the big um, reasons we do that is, I mean, you know, I look at the non-cash items like stock-based compensation and, and depletion and, de- and depreciation. Sure. You know, in, in Canada, we're subject to the new international financial reporting standards, which um, force us to uh, take big write-downs and depletion mm-hmm. on, uh, on certain wells and whatnot. So, you know, we look at it as kind of an unfair uh, deple- um, number. So... You know, we we we, we uh, try to focus on the adjusted numbers that are the real hard cash numbers. And yeah, we had a really good year. We um, we grew about five hundred and twenty five percent in production during fiscal two thousand twelve. So it uh, it was it was a good year. And that's uh, also taking into account we had to shut in approximately two hundred and fifty boe a day of our natural gas production. So we had a good year. What uh, so what did you generate then for the year for the twelve months ending? December, or, or I'm sorry, uh, June 30th, your cash flow numbers, and I agree, cash flow is really what people need to look at, free cash flow even, and, you know, after you've... Yeah. But, but what did you generate for the year? Because we're looking at a stock that's selling at 52 cents a share. Right. So, it, you know, we did, we did about $9 million in cash flow from operations. So, you know, we were profitable. We did, um, um, you know, we had some really nice uh, wells that we drilled, which provided... Uh, uh, very good income for us, uh, very good oil income. And, you know, that's the nature of what we're, we're chasing. You know, in our core area in the Peace River Arch with our joint venture partner, we're chas- chasing risky exploration wells that, you know, when you hit them, they can be really big producers. And, and again, it's exploration, so you're not going to hit on every well. Um, so, we, you know, we've, uh, we were fortunate enough last year, we had a couple of really nice wells, and it, uh, 
it kick off some really good cash flow for us. But if I'm looking at nine million, you got fifty four million shares outstanding. If my calculator is working right, we're looking at sixteen, seventeen cents uh per share about, right? Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. That's against right. uh, against fifty two cents. So I mean give the give the investors some idea about what they're getting and uh what they have gotten, I should say, last year based on last year's production, as you say, up five up five fold or so to um what what are your growth targets for this year in terms of oil production? Uh, well, yeah. Let me just I'll go back to your you first had mentioned about you know why you know maybe some people, including myself, think maybe we're a bit undervalued, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we're the non-operating partner. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our joint venture partner is private, so they they are steering the ship, um, to use lack of a better term. But um, you know, we have uh, in the past couple months started to make some moves to become an operator and to to try and con- continue to build our production and our cash flow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the ultimate goal for us is to one day pull off a merger with our joint venture partner so we have one big fully operated um, property of 123 sections, all oil-focused in, in an area that's surrounded by majors. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of the goal to, to, get, to that, get to that point, and I think, you know, one day we're going to get there. Um, our goal, uh, independently, Airway, is to exit at around 1,200 BOE a day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's an aggressive target, um, and you know, especially when you look at uh, the type of wells that we're drilling in the Peace River Arch. You know, we had uh, our best well last year um, over a year period produced 900 barrels a day, um, and to date has produced over 250,000 barrels a day. Hmm. Um, it has since obviously come off. I mean, it, uh, we did a year of that with that production level with no depletion. Um, and that, that well has now come off and, you know, it's still producing obviously, but, you know, on a million dollar investment from Airway, um, you know, we grossed over $12 million of revenue from just one well. And that's just hmm. typical how some of the wells that we drill in this exploration, um, kind of, of environment, those are the type of wells that you can draw. Now, you're, all not, you're always not going to get there, but, you know, we feel like um, we've got a few more of those, and we've definitely identified a lot more of those locations with the 3D seismic we shot this year. Um, and we've tied in uh, a couple of our wells that uh, we drilled in the summer, and they, uh, the uh, performance of those wells is starting to improve, and they're starting to stabilize, so we'll have some reports on that soon. But we're really focused on building... Um, our cash flow, and um, so we're able to operate, um, you know, without, uh, you know, having to constantly go back to the market and, and raise money. You know, we haven't done a financing since December 2010, but we've got a number of different uh, locations and uh, drill programs that we're going to be uh, kicking off here shortly in, in November and in December. Um, where we expect to hit that 1,200 BOE a day mark. So, hmm. you know, it's an aggressive. Uh, it's a very aggressive target, but again, I'm, you know, again, with the drilling locations we've identified and some of the wells we're going to be drilling, um, actually 100% to airway, you know, we're pretty confident that we oh. can get there. Oh, that's nice. So, so that's, uh, that's, is that about double what you produced your, what was your, your production level this year as you exited, uh, June 30th? This we, year? Eg- yeah, so we exited 2011 at 600 and, 69 BOE a day, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, you know, when you take into the depletions and, the, you know, a lot of the wells come off, you, you know, it's, it's essentially a double. Mm-hmm. Um, That's pretty good. You know, and, and, uh, yeah. It is. It's, uh, it's, um, 
it, it's it's aggressive, but we are pretty aggressive on, on what we're doing. And you know, we when we set that target of twelve hundred BOE a day, we had uh, we looked at the the inventory of wells that we are about to drill, and um, we looked at some acquisitions that we think we'd be able to pull off. And you know, if I think we can we can definitely get there, and uh, I'm pretty excited about it. You're, uh, you mentioned you're not going to hit on everything because you're obviously an exploration company, but we're not talking about wildcat wells for the most part, are we? More development wells a lot of times? Um, we Our drilling programs have a combination of development and exploration. So we've got, uh, you know, we've got a number of the riskier uh, Leduc targets that we've been drilling um, that uh, are, you know, those are full-on exploration wells. You're not going to hit on all of them. But we've also have a number of the development, uh, what we call Triassic wells. These are the uh, 1,400 meters. Um, they cost about a half a million dollars to drill uh, and maybe another 200,000 to complete and tie in. And uh, these wells will come on at around 150 barrels a day, and they'll stay at that level for maybe six months, and then they'll come off to about 70 or 80 barrels a day. But they pay back in less than 60 days. So, mm. I mean, these are the type of wells that um, I would drill every day if I could. Yeah. Um, and we had a number of them lined up in our summer program, which uh, we got one drilled, and then we ran into some issues with some landowners, which uh, could have been a long legal process to get uh, to get, get drilling again. But we just uh, kind of took the high road and have had to resurvey all our wells and and drill our, and we're going to start drilling here shortly and drill around uh, these landowners, but. Uh, you know, these are the type of wells that um, uh, are just, you know, development and provide just excellent cash flow and payback uh, in a rather short order. You're, I think, uh, as I remember, probably about 90% of your of your production is in oil and, and the other 10% or so is in, in, uh, in gas. Is that right? And you're shutting in your natural gas now. What do you think, uh, what sort of price do you need to see to start to, to sell that gas? Well, you know what? We um, actually I spent all day yesterday with our joint venture partner outlining, um, what, you know, our our upcoming uh, drilling program and whatnot. And we did have a good conversation about the gas and gas has started to rebound. And uh, as a result of our joint venture partner owning and operating the gas facility and mm-hmm. a lot of the infrastructure, we can bring on our gas at uh, at really you know at, at depressed levels. But gas has started to come up, so you know we definitely are. Um, uh, considering bringing our gas production back on uh, um, in the near term for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, that uh, that'd be a little bonus then in terms of cash Absolutely. flow. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, a nice little bonus. What uh, you mentioned that if you were fully integrated here, instead of being the non-operating partner, you you feel the market would probably give you a little better uh, a little better valuation. What sort of valuation multiples might you look for? How much might be Let's say some of your peers might might sell for. Um, well, you know, it's uh, that's a tough question. It's such, yeah. a, it's such a volatile market these days. And mm-hmm. um, you know, if I take a look at our map and our our land map, and you look at the 123 sections of contiguous land, we've got an inventory of you know 80 to 90 well locations. And as a result of our 3D seismic program, we're oil focused. Um, you know, you just look at what other transactions over the past year and a half have happened and. You know, if, you know. Let's just say we're we're at two thousand barrels a day. If I, if if that's the case, and and you know, and and the companies did merge, and you know, the companies oil oil weighted companies are are trading in the area of eighty to ninety 
even a hundred thousand a flowing barrel of oil. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah. you know, by no means is there any discussion. I, I want to be clear: we haven't entered into any agreement with our joint venture partner or anything like that. It's just that's something I'm I've always been working towards. I just think we'd be a much better, um, a much better uh, company to be one fully operated. Entity, um, but I don't want to don't want to mislead people by saying Under, we have understood. In place. Understood, Chris. Yeah. We're uh, unfortunately we're out of time already. What? Where can people go to follow your progress? What's your website? Uh, our website is uh, www.arrowwayenergy.com, and um, you know I think we're going to have some. Uh, we should have some good news leading up uh, here very shortly on what's upcoming, and it's going to be a very exciting November and December for the company. Excellent. Look forward to it, and of course, let uh, my listeners know that I also cover your company in my newsletter as well. So thank you very much. Really good to hear from you again, and we'll look forward to talking to you again sometime in the near future. Thank you very much for being with us, uh, Chris. Uh, Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back after the break. I'm going to be uh, playing an interview, or let's say a discussion between Robert Prechter and James Turk on the inflation-deflation question. Don't go away. We'll be right back. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO. I've recently recommended Northern Free Gold to my subscribers because its nearly 6 million gold equivalent ounce resource can lead to a major rise in its share price. The company's Yukon project is in a politically safe jurisdiction far from population centers and it is advantaged with road access and nearby electricity. A large deposit and a vision of positive economics should make Northern Free Gold an acquisition target. The potential upside in my view for these shares is major. Our Vista Gold Corporation's principal asset is the Dewey Project, which currently has a 43101 compliant resource of approximately 3 million ounces of gold and is considered to be one of the last undeveloped, low-grade, bulk tonnage potential super pits in Quebec. The Dewey Project has significant potential to further grow the resource by both step-out drilling as well as further infill drilling within the existing porphyry. Our Vista has a well-designed, extensive 35,000-meter 100-hole drill program planned for Q4 2012, with results expected in early 2013 and an updated resource estimate to follow. Our Vista Gold trades on the TSXV under the symbol AVA. For further details, please visit www.arvistagold.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questions at gmail.com. 
That's questions, the number four, Taylor, at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times and the Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. With the permission of Gold Money, I am playing a discussion that took place several weeks ago uh, between hyperinflationist James Turk and super deflationist Robert Prechter. Listen carefully as these two giant intellects air the reason for their views. Go ahead, Matt. You can play that interview now. This is James Turk, and it's my pleasure to be speaking today with an old friend, Bob Prechter. Bob, I really want to thank you for joining me on this podcast. Got a couple of yeah. questions for you. Sure. Uh, I want to talk about inflation, defla- inflation, deflation. You know, this is something you and I have spoken about many times over the past. Um, I want to see if you're still holding to your deflationary views. Um, very strongly. And I think we're seeing some of the fundamental and technical reasons both. Uh, that are beginning to show deflation becoming a real threat again, as it was in 2008. Uh, first of all is the impending collapse of this whole uh, charade in Europe, the idea that Germany could hold all of the profligate countries uh, from going under in terms of their uh, IOUs. Uh, the Greeks don't want it. The Germans hate it. That whole dynamic is about to end. Um, and I think from the technical point of view, we finally had our downturn in the stock market. Most stocks actually peaked a year ago in uh, April of 2011, if you go by the New York Composite Index. But the blue chips dragged it up to sort of a double top here in 2012. I think the internals are absolutely terrible. The market has really gotten thin. Um, the, as you know, volume it was low and contracting for the entire three-year period of the rally. So uh, with this recent crack in May, uh, I think that's a signal, which I've been waiting for, to indicate the kickoff for the second deflationary wave. We'll see. Yeah. Are you expecting now that the ECB will intervene and come up with more uh, long-term refinancing operation or other types of um, uh, schemes and gimmicks you know, to keep putting new money into the system to prevent a well, deflation? Yeah, when I when I wrote Conquer the Crash, I said ultimately the central banks would have to give up because they're working in a credit system. If they were just dictators with a printing press and they could turn the crank and all we had was currency out there, that would be different. But the U.S. government depends entirely on the validity of its bonds, the uh, federal uh, – uh, the Fed itself depends on the integrity of its assets. I don't think either of those entities are, are quite ready to go over the edge and, and simply start printing currency like 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 flypaper. But um, I could be wrong. But I think the markets are telling me that that this is emerging. Uh, I think the metals topped last year. The commodities topped last year at a lower high, by the way, than 2008. And usually, when silver goes vertical on the upside and then drops 50 percent. There's no guarantees in life, but I would say that's a pretty good sign that an important reversal occurred. So when I look at commodities, I look at the metals, I look at the stocks, and especially looking at interest rates, which are still hovering around zero on a short-term basis for the uh, pristine paper. Uh, I have to say that the deflationary uh, outlook is is still well intact, and the central banks did uh, quite a job of, of keeping things relatively inflated ever since uh, 2000, and especially since the real peak in debt in 2006 to 2008, but I think eventually they're going to lose. I think uh, 6 billion people on Earth turning into a different frame of mind is going to overwhelm their abilities. 
Yeah. You know, in a deflationary environment, I think one would expect the dollar to be the, the big winner. Um, but, you know, the dollar really hasn't been doing much. You know, the, if you look at the dollar index, it's only about eight, just around in the low 80s. So it's essentially in a trend uh, or a sideways trading range, no different from where it was back, uh, you know, in 2005, 2006. We had the dollar rally in 2008. We've had a bit of a bounce here. What isn't the fact that the dollar is not responding an indication that maybe really deflation is not in the cards? Well, I think it's a pretty incredible feat that the dollar is not making new lows and is going sideways when we've had record uh, debt creation uh, and uh, money printing by the Federal Reserve. We've, we had QE0 in 2008 where they added a trillion dollars to their balance sheet. We've had QE1, QE2, threats of QE3, and yet the dollar refuses to go down. So I would say... With the wind at their backs, which has been the case for the past 10 years, it's uh, pretty amazing that over the last four years there hasn't been any further deterioration of the dollar. But I will say this, you know, the dollar, when you talk about the dollar, for example, the dollar index or the dollar relative to the euro, we're only talking about relationships among currencies. And I think all of the major currencies of the world are going to have serious deflations. It's very possible that they could all... Uh, have a have a terrific deflationary collapse in terms of the amount of credit that's that's still good out there in the world, and most of the currencies could end up at the end of it when the dust clears, just about the same relationships they are today. But I've been saying all along that there are more dollars out there, more more debts denominated in dollars. So I think the deflation there will be more serious, and therefore the dollar nominally will probably perform better than the other uh, other currencies. But that's that's kind of a gamble and a guess. But what do you see uh, going forward? You're looking at everything very carefully. You've got uh, your indicators as well, and I know you're on the inflationary side. So what are you seeing that you like on that side? Well, I'm actually on the hyperinflationary side. And right. The, re- <laughs> the reason why I say that is that, uh, you know, hyperinflation manifests itself in two different ways. Uh, you know, they either print paper currency or they create uh, more zeros in, in your in uh, bank checking accounts. You know, when you look at Weimar Germany and um, Zimbabwe, they had a paper currency hyperinflation, and the reason why they had those is very few people had bank accounts. The banking account, uh, the banking system was not very sophisticated. You know, even government employees at the end of the month got paid in in paper banknotes in a little pay packet. So when governments in those countries started uh, spending money and borrowing borrowing more than the market was willing to lend or could lend, the government either had to stop spending or turn to the central bank to give it the currency that it wanted to spend. And both the Reichsbank and the Zimbabwe Central Bank, you know, started the printing presses and created all kinds of banknotes and had a tremendous uh, hyperinflation. But if you look at Argentina back in 1991, it also had hyperinflation, but they weren't moving uh, bushel baskets of currency around because Argentina had a very sophisticated banking system um, most people had bank accounts. When people were paid or most commerce was conducted, uh, it was conducted by moving money around within the banking system. So when the Argentine government was spending too much money and borrowing, uh, it turned to the central bank and asked the central bank to create currency, but they created deposit currency, not you know cash currency. So you had a deposit currency hyperinflation in Argentina. So given you know the similarity of the U.S. Uh, sophisticated banking system with that of Argentina, I think we're going forward uh, toward a deposit currency hyperinflation because, in my mind, Bob, the critical thing is that there's a huge gap between what the U.S. government is spending and what the U.S. government is receiving as revenue. In the normal circumstances, 
they would have to cut down spending to match their revenue. They're not doing that. They're turning to central banks and the banking system also to a certain extent, which is buying government paper, uh, to create this deposit currency to allow the government to continue spending. So I'm on the uh, the uh, side that suggests that we're actually going to go to uh, hyperinflation. And there's one chart that I like to use to suggest that as well. If you look at the gold chart going back to the beginning of the decade uh, and look at it on a log scale, regardless what currency you look at it, <clears throat> You're actually seeing a parabola form on a log-scale chart, which suggests that the gold price has the potential to go exponential, which is what you would expect in a hyperinflation. So despite all of the credit destruction and wealth destruction and uh, destruction of financial assets, which I must admit um, does have the appearances of deflation, when it comes to currency itself, I'm expecting a hyperinflation. Well, if we get hyperinflation, you're going to... Uh, have to see interest rates rise, I would assume. And I also believe that that ultimately is, is going to choke off what they're trying to do. I think there are also political, uh, barriers to hyperinflating and, and super borrowing from the government. We've already seen, um, the rise of many, many people, including in the Tea Party, for example, you know, getting angry about government spending. And that hasn't been the case for a long, long time. I think there are going to be political, social, and other restraints uh, that people are not taking into account, the Cadencians don't take into account, the monetarists don't take into account, they think the economy is a machine and they don't realize that people get emotional, they get angry, they get upset. And that's what's happening in Europe. You know, they thought, well, we can bail out all the countries we want. And now they're realizing they, they can't. It's a bottomless pit. And the producing nations, such as Germany, are the ones ending up in the short end of the stick. And guess what? Even the nations that are spending their heads off are ending up in poverty. They're, they've got uh, unemployment up in double digits, very solid double digits, and getting worse. It's just going to lead to, uh, I think, a complete repudiation of all the IOUs out there. And I think that will be far swifter than any response they can generate, particularly in that political environment. But um, there's enough balance, I think, in all these markets to allow either scenario to work out from this point. Yeah. So I think we'll just have to wait and see. Let me ask you a question. You know, in a deflationary environment, the demand for the currency tends to rise uh, because people believe that the currency is going to have greater purchasing power in the deflation going forward in the future. But um, what if the de demand for currency doesn't um, arise because of all of the concerns about, you know, the quality of the currency, the quality of the banking system? I mean, even the central banks... Uh, and the European Central Bank itself, its solvency is being called into question here in Europe. So why would people rush into the euro and cause a deflation by, you know, rising demand for the currency? Well, it's, I have never said that I thought people would rush into cash. What I'm saying is that there will be a collapse in outstanding IOU values. And that means all this debt that's out there, trillions and trillions of dollars for 60 trillion by one measure, 600 trillion by another, uh, is just simply going to uh, collapse in terms of its value. In other words, people are going to say, this stuff is worthless. Nobody's going to pay me back, nothing with any uh, kind of value. And already people have realized that the Greek debt fell in that category. I mean, what what did they do? They didn't print their way out of it. They actually defaulted on a huge amount of it. Yeah. So I think that's the future. And what remains whatever surviving dollars and euros there are, which in my view will only be the ones you can stuff in your wallet, plus maybe a few IOUs from very solid corporations, uh, are going to be the only, uh, you know, dollar-denominated uh, 
currency or debt assets available. So it's, it's more like by default. But in terms of demand for money, a lot of people recall in, in Germany, as soon as someone got paid in the manner you, you talked about, what did they do? They rushed out and spent it as fast as they could. But today, in America, people are actually trying to hold on to whatever money they have. Uh, they, except for once, uh, one quarter recently, they've been actually shrinking the amount of consumer debt, except in the, uh, in the, in the area of college loans. And look at the people that are just desperate for jobs. You know, they want to get a hold of dollars in any way they can, and they're having extreme difficulty doing it. The government's trying to paper over it with unemployment checks, but that's not going to work. They're taking it from producers and giving it to people who aren't producing. That's all part and parcel of the depression that's coming. They're doing everything possible wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you. I'm sure you. we'll agree on that. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree completely with you on that. It, it, they are definitely going the wrong way. And unless we come back to basics, and of course, sound money and the rule of law are two most basic elements of it. We're going to there continue go. going in the, in the wrong direction. Yeah, we, yeah, we've set up this situation, or the government did in 1913, uh, where they, by by law, established what I think was a non-constitutional idea, which is uh, a monopoly on banking uh, that gave favors to the government, and it's all based, instead of base, being based on money, in other words, gold, it was based on debt. So this brings me around to a question I've always wanted to ask you. What what prompted you to create something that sounds new but is really as old as the hills, non-debt banking? <laughs> um, really, basically, just a... Um, study of monetary history. You know, my hobby is collecting and reading books on uh, money and banking. I've got 3,000 books in my my library on a history of currency, the history of gold, the history of silver, history of banking. Um, and it seemed inevitable to me from the reading that I did that this experiment with fiat currency would eventually fall apart and that gold's 5,000-year history of money uh, would ultimately, you know, come win out, just like it's done at so many other times in the past when there have been financial crises. Oh, we totally and, agree on that. I yeah. think fiat money will be uh, in the history books sometime in the next hundred years. <laughs> yeah, and gold will still be there in the center of global commerce. Yeah, but how we get from here to there, I guess, is the question we really have to deal with. And, you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty. Before we get into the, the gold, I want to talk to you about, you know, gold and, and silver. Just one thing that um, is a conundrum. You know, we're talking about uh, a deflation, and in the U.S., um, I, the point you're making about increasing hoarding of dollars because people want to get liquid, etc., yet inflation in the United States continues to rise, even by the government's own statistics, which I think understate, you know, the, the true uh, rate of inflation or loss of dollar purchasing power. Uh, how do you explain that conundrum? Uh, I don't think they're taking into account the phenomenal loss of what people thought they had as wealth in the value of their homes. That's almost every, you know, family in the, in the United States has, has some kind of uh, uh, connection. Well, let's say two-thirds of them anyway uh, own a house or a condo or, or something like that, and those prices have just been crushed. And this does not surprise me. I think what's happened in the real estate market, worldwide pretty much, but we'll focus on the United States for now, is a microcosm and a, a, a flash forward 
of what we're going to see throughout the entire debt structure of the world. In other words, these investment values collapsing, crashing, and being unable to recover. We're reading a few stories now about how people are saying the housing market's recovering, but it's not, and there's still a tremendous number of homes that are foreclosed and need to be sold, and they've been holding them back from the marketplace, but they'll be out there eventually. So, yeah, some of the consumer prices have gone up. Consumer prices, as you know, lag. They're the last ones to roll over. But part of it is because we've been in a reflationary three-year period. So even though we went, uh, I think PPI and CPI both went negative in late 08, early 09, but uh, the central banks and I think natural cycles, I mean, I got bullish in, in late February 2009 because we completed an Elliott Way pattern, a beautiful five-wave decline. So I said we need a bit, very big bear market rally. All of that's been on schedule, so I'm not that surprised that uh, some prices are holding up, especially investment prices because or stock prices because that's where most of the uh, free money offered by the Fed has been going. You know, and then it goes into hedge funds and they leverage it up 30 times. No wonder the stock market is holding up. But when that leveraging goes in the other direction and begins to deleverage, I think it's going to be a sight to see. Yeah. I think we're going to see the, the, the Dow drop uh, thousands of points before it's over. So what do people do to prepare for that? Well, uh, what I've been saying is, is you want to be in absolutely no standard investments. You don't want stocks. You don't want... Uh, bonds, especially uh, municipal bonds or junk bonds, but just about any type, you want cash cash equivalents uh, both here and, and in some cases abroad, and you want your store of gold and silver in a nice, safe place, and you wait because the great buying opportunities of all time have occurred after uh, debt collapses, whether you're talking about 1859 or uh, 1932. And I think another one of those great opportunities is coming up. And, and it's very tough to decide, as you well know, you know, exactly what do you, what do you hold to, to take the maximum av- advantage of things. I think gold, of course, is a timeless store of value, but relative to these currencies, I think there's going to be some pretty wild fluctuation. But the yeah. great thing about, you know, I've, as you know, I've, I've said positive things about gold money in the past. And the thing I like about it the best is that it allows a person to escape uh, the the debt-based money system. And even though uh, currency values are going to fluctuate wildly, which will appear to, to be gold fluctuating wildly, but it won't be, um, as long as you have a, a, a pure money option, you know, you can just opt out and say, I'm not going to play, and I don't want to be a speculator and try to figure it all out. Yeah, so the key is is what you do is you get liquid and let everything fall apart until we get to that stage when uh, the last excesses of the system have been wrung out. And then you use your liquidity to invest in the next cycle. Is, is that what you're basically saying? Yeah, and, and when we bottomed in 1932, stocks bottomed in July, silver bottomed in December. Uh, commodities, of course, had a very strong run-up along with stocks in the first five years of the bull market from 1932 to 1937. So I think you can invest in just about anything at the low. Uh, but if you're money-oriented and you're worried about uh, the social uh, unrest that's going to be occurring at that time, I would probably use that opportunity to buy, to buy gold. But yeah. if you're a long-term person, you definitely want to scoop up some real estate at five cents on the dollar, you know, in coastal areas, something like that, or your dream house. Um, and if you're a speculator, you know, maybe you buy some commodities. But I'm I'm pretty simple when it comes to all this. I don't think most people are that 
sophisticated. They, they should have at the bottom, they should be in real money and they should be in property and probably a lot of stocks that survive, you know, five cents a share. Yeah, we're seeing social unrest here in Europe. Even in, you know, I'm sure in the television in the states, you see the the various protests, occasional riots, and things of that nature. Is it likely to see similar social unrest in the U.S. In your view, we haven't seen anything yet. Uh, I think unemployment is going to go past one third. It could even at the bottom hit a half of the country if you if they tally it uh, properly and yes. don't try to hide it as they do now. And, and can you imagine with so many people with nothing to lose? I think it's going to be a very, very dangerous place at the bottom. We've got, we've got an entitlement generation, unlike the generation that suffered through the Great Depression. You know, people are used to having their uh, unemployment taken care of and their Social Security is coming and my Medicare is going to take care of me. And I think those things are going away. So it's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be very difficult. And I think people shouldn't just think about where their money is. They should think about where they are. Yeah, in the 30s, it was still much, very much an agricultural um, economy and a lot of self-sufficiency. That self-sufficiency has largely disappeared in today's economy. Well, let me ask you a question. Since you brought up social unrest, uh, the the only um, part about gold money that I think is a little bit disconcerting is that there is a hoard held somewhere, and. I suppose that could always be the target of uh, extreme political uh, forces. You know, yeah, they wanna, are they going to try to steal it someday? I know you have a couple of different vaults. Yeah, you know, it's it's really a good question because at the end of the day, you really don't know the future, uh, but you do know that you know gold is an asset that governments are going to want if they end up breaking the. Uh, Breaking the law and you know and confiscate that. So what, what you really breaking want to, the law? The government never does that. <laughs> so what you really want to do is diversify as much as you possibly can uh, from a practical point of view. Geographic diversification makes sense. Uh, different parts of the world, in case a war breaks out in one part, you don't want to have your gold, you know, uh, all at risk in case of a war. But also you want to be in different political jurisdictions uh, in case one political jurisdiction starts confiscating assets. You know, for example, Argentina. If you had all of your uh, wealth in Argentina presently, you'd probably be regretting it because of the uh, various policies that the Argentinian government has been imposing to try to keep capital flight and keep, you know, their system um, of government, um, socialist government going. But, you know, it's fraying at the edges. So I guess the key really is that in an uncertain and unpredictable future, Geographic diversification is one way to protect yourself. So I'm really a, a, a supporter of physical gold, regardless how you, you own it. And there are basically only two ways. You buy it and you store it yourself, or you buy it and have someone store it for you, which is, of course, what we do in gold money. But if you do that second option, you want to be certain that who you're storing it with you know, has uh, the same types of governance uh, issues and uh, policies and procedures that we do in gold money in terms of audits, double checking, and things of that nature, so, so that you know your gold is safe. Yeah, but keep in mind. Yeah, I was going to say, keep in mind there there's a bigger pool of gold out there, if you know, or, or silver for that matter, in terms of the ETFs. So if if you're going to be confiscating, it's more likely they're going to go after the ETFs rather than uh, private hoards and private companies. Would be my guess. 
I, I tend to agree. And one of the things I liked and I mentioned in my book was if, if you have your money with gold money and you're in one of those dicey countries where you have to get out, they're not going to let you get out without leaving all your money behind. And in your head is your gold money account. And, and, uh, you know, they, they, uh, don't make you give that up as you leave. That's a pretty good asset to have with you. You don't have to try to figure out how to get your money across the border. For example, you just leave, and, and wherever you set up shop, you've still got your account. Yeah, that's one of the beauties of gold money. You know, you put your gold in gold money, and then you can wire the proceeds when you, if you want to sell some of your gold or silver to your bank account anywhere you are in the world. Uh, so it gives you a lot of additional flexibility. Well, you know the old saying, uh, uh, I don't spread everything around i put my eggs in one basket and then i really watch the basket <laughs> yeah. i guess that's i guess that's your job and in other words if you have a couple of vaults you want to keep really close eye on the on the legal proceedings and the political events in the jurisdiction where you're holding it and and i suppose you'd have to be ahead of of uh, any really bad news in that geographical area and physically move your stock yeah, exactly. And, you know, the, the, the uh, countries that we chose, they all have, you know, good, uh, solid histories. Uh, London has not confiscated gold since uh, Charles II did it in 1663. Uh, Zurich, uh, to my knowledge, has never confiscated gold. Uh, Hong Kong, the third vault, it was confiscated when uh, the Red Chinese Army moved in in 1948. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's likely to be happening anytime yeah. soon. So I think no, those are good choices. Yeah, the good jurisdictions, and over time we'll be adding additional jurisdictions as well as our customers. Uh, right, request and if one of them changes for for any of the myriad reasons that can happen, you can always you've got the other two or or more that you can shift the gold to. Absolutely, and you can always take delivery of your gold from Gold Money at any time, uh, even if you don't want to shift it from one vault to another. Just take delivery of it. So, are, are customers having problem uh, translating to grams and mills? No, it's very easy with a computer um, because we show, you know, ounces as well as grams. It's interesting, you know, in the Anglo-Saxon world, people talk in terms of ounces uh, when they're talking about gold, but the rest of the world is pretty much a gram-based um, um, and metric system-based uh, as to how they view gold. So we really cater to, to, to both. Yeah, that's been a long that change has been a long time coming <laughs> yeah, exactly. in the States. You know, you still have to buy two sets of tools. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Bob, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you. you have any no, other I'm glad questions? you came out of semi-retirement for a chat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, happy to, happy to do it. Any other questions about gold money? Um, no, but I guess one more observation, you know, money is supposed to satisfy three things, be a unit of account, uh, a, a, an item of final payment, and a store of value. And most of the fiat currencies of the world are trying to be the first two, you know, let's let's account in this, and, if, and that's how you have to pay your taxes, so we force you to account in that unit. Uh, it's final payment. It's not that satisfactory, though, because of the third thing, which is the store value thing. And I'm, I really believe that we have turned the tide from the most uh, expansive monetary and financial investment experiment in the history of the world. I think psychology is changing toward conservatism uh, in that entire area. It's going to take a decade or two to play out, but that's when people, I think, are finally going to realize that the store of value uh, – 
part of what money is supposed to be is is suddenly going to become a whole lot more important to them than they ever ever thought about. Yeah, I agree with you. And I guess to put it in, you know, from a deflationary perspective, if prices of everything goes down, the price of gold will go down less, meaning your purchasing power will still be preserved in gold. Would you agree with yeah. that? I've said that many times. Yep. Yeah. So you're, you're better off holding gold. And, uh, and if you're happy with some currencies as well, I guess is the way uh, you're looking at it in order to achieve that liquidity for the ultimate bottom. Yeah, you'll be better off holding gold, I think, than stocks, most bonds, commodities, or even real estate. Those are going to be the worst, and those are the ones that almost everyone else is recommending. And all I'm saying is you want money. Now, money is a somewhat debatable idea these days as to what it exactly is, and that's why I've somewhat diversified into money, but only into money. Okay, understood. Bob, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Absolutely. We'll do it again sometime. I'd like to do that. Thank you again. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources com or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. 